Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Wake up number 94, or welcome to episode 94 of Movie <laughs> Oubliette, the trans-hemisphere podcast for forgotten fantastical films, with me, Conrad, getting excited about going to see the new Scream film in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, feeling like what a lump of butter would feel like in a volcano in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> Oh my. We focus on sci-fi, horror and fantasy because we love dreams involving Christmas presents magically coming true, phone calls from the dead and randomly teleporting to West Virginia. Hello, Dan. How are yeah. you? Oh, good. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty hot. Uh, yeah. Mean, it's summer in Australia, so... Yeah, we're all melting. Oh no. What's the temperature there today? Today's not too bad. It was 32, I think. But uh, yeah, we've oh. had a good solid uh, string of days, 35. It's, yeah. uh, it's warm. Yeah. The yeah. nights are the worst. When it's 27 degrees Celsius at night, not fun. Um, no. Hard you just to sleep. lie yes. in a puddle of your own sweat, don't you really? It's not fun. <laughs> but for all you Americans out there, that is 80 degrees Fahrenheit oh. at night time. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> it is, yeah. I'm sure some of our listeners in southern states can uh, relate to that. <laughs> yes, yes. So you're looking forward to Scream? I am, yes. The reviews are pretty good. They're sort okay. of saying, you know, it's self-referential. It's making fun of the fact that there's a reboot of a of a sequel or a requel or whatever <laughs> yeah. the hell they call these things now. So it's going to be self-referential and very meta, but apparently it's quite gory and quite scary again okay. so yeah i'm looking forward to that okay all right all right um i mean i didn't enjoy scream 3 and scream 4 was so so it was okay mm. i didn't think it was amazing yeah well the, these are the directors behind ready or not which i really enjoyed so. oh okay i haven't seen that yet yeah no it's good it was a good fun film a bit of a fun tongue-in-cheek slasher so they were a great choice for this right and uh maybe apparently they've done something that you know it's it's not it's not going to be a, like a stone cold classic but it's a good fun outing for the franchise yeah. so and okay. uh yeah anything because it's cold and gray and it's only light for about five hours here <laughs> so yeah anything to sort of break the monotony really <laughs> looking forward to it yeah by the right. time this comes out i will have seen it and maybe i hate it <laughs> who knows okay we'll find out next episode we will do yeah Speaking of uh, episodes, have our listeners been talking about our recent releases? Well, we've got uh, people even going back to some of our old ones. So on Byzantium from episode 78, oh, yes. Blaze Cobb commented, they are sucreants, not vampires. 
just busting your balls. They are bloodsuckers, close enough. <laughs> no fangs, though. In Byzantium, their thumbnail grows out long and pointy when they get the bloodlust. They puncture the skin and clamp their mouth over the wound and drink. Also, Darren Shan's vampires don't have fangs similar to this film. So, Cirque de Freak series of books? I don't know if you're familiar oh, with those. okay. Yeah. yeah. They started making them into movies. Well, they had, they made one movie. Yeah, uh, with Josh Hutchison. Yeah. It bombed pretty hard. Yeah, I did watch it. It was, it was okay. I don't know. Well, Blaze Cobb says... The books, all in caps. Ignore the film. That's what I do. <laughs> so, Of course. Of yeah, course. A reader out there, so that's great. On Firestarter, Jake says, I can understand why people slate it, but I love it, and it does exactly what I would expect and like from a film with that premise, which was made in the 80s. Mm. <laughs> I would agree. Very true. It's, it's great. It, it, it really uh, ages very well. Yeah. I was impressed with the behind-the-scenes footage that Isaac churned up for our socials uh-huh. with the the guys with the asbestos masks on their faces being set on fire. Right. Oh, no. What kind of a life is that? My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, of course, we heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Oh, hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. He said, Firestarter is fine, but between the Fury, Scanners, The Dead Zone, Starman, and even Winter Kills to a lesser extent, I really feel like I've had my fill of films about people with semi-supernatural powers on the run from shadowy government goons made between 78 and 84. (laughs) And you know, when I say fine, I think I really just mean no better or worse than any other film with the same plot, except X-Men. I'm glad Movie Oubliette validated my déjà vu by mentioning all of these other Psychic on the Run films in their latest episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah, very, very true. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks, everyone, for writing in. We always love hearing from you. Yeah, please uh, send us more messages. Mm. So today, Conrad, what are we going to be discussing on the episode? Well, I feel strangely compelled to walk over to the Oubliette Hatch. (laughs) Oh, that's a red and green motel room. Oh, yes. Oh, the phone's ringing. Oh, I'll get that. Hello? Hello, Conrad. Hello. Uh, Have you got a film for me? Yes, it's in your shoe under the bed. Oh, yes. Found it. Oof, smells a bit. Okay, here's a test for you, strange phone voice. What's in my hand? Chapstick. Weird. Okay, bye for now. Ah, there you are. A happy couple. I've been looking for you. Okay. Oof. Wow. What an experience. Very, very odd. It was like a Twin Peaksian almost. Very strange. <laughs> so what do you have? So I have with me a 2002 American supernatural horror mystery film, The Mothman Prophecies, directed by Mark Pellington and starring Richard Gere, Laura Linney, Will Patton, Deborah Messing, Lucinda Jenny and Alan Bates. Ooh, so what's this movie about? 
Moths? Well, you'd think so. No, it's about <laughs> John Klein, a Washington reporter whose happy-go-yuppie lifestyle is destroyed when his wife dies of a rare brain disease after seeing a supernatural apparition and crashing their car. He's then thrown literally off course when he finds himself in the wrong town on the wrong coast while on a long car journey and arrives in a beautiful West Virginian town in the grip of a series of unexplainable events. The townsfolk, including the sweet-natured but terminally confused Gordon, keep seeing Mothman, a strange man-sized winged harbinger of doom, and receiving eerie phone calls with otherworldly metallic sounds and spooky voices whispering of a great tragedy to come. While investigating with pragmatic local officer named Connie, John falls under the spell of one mystery caller, Indred Cold, who promises the grief-stricken man a chance to speak to his dead wife. Mm -hmm. Will John get confirmation of a happy afterlife for his lost love? Will Connie's dreams of drowning in a sea littered with Christmas presents come true? And will Richard Gere close his eyes and bow his head every time his character hears bad news? Find out! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can't wait to get into this. And we do have some help. We do. We are very, very fortunate to be joined by the director himself, Mr. Mark Pellington, here to uh, celebrate the 20th anniversary of the release of this film. So, yes, can't wait. Yay! Our special guest today cut his teeth creating MTV's innovative visual style and became an award-winning and acclaimed music video director, working with artists such as U2 and Bruce Springsteen, among many others. He's directed episodes of series such as Cold Case and Star Trek Short Treks, as well as feature films in genres as diverse as comedy dramas and gripping neo-noir thrillers. But he's probably best loved among fans of our favourite genres for directing the chilling supernatural mystery film that marks its 20th anniversary today, The Mothman Prophecies. We are very excited to welcome Mr. Mark Pellington. Hello, sir. Thank you. Good intro. Thank you. (laughs) You said the title of the film perfectly, (laughs) as opposed to Mothman Prophecies. It's Mothman. (laughs) You know, it has to be more hushed. Yes. And that that came into like the marketing in the film was how do you brand this movie and have it be mysterious and not hokey? Mm. Because we got to Pittsburgh. We shot it in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And like literally the local paper had a big bug-eyed cartoon Oh, wow. <laughs> and it said, Mothman's here. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Well, the film is very ahead of its time. That's why I couldn't believe that it's 20 years old already, because it's very much in a style that I'm familiar with now in similar series you see on Netflix and so on. But, I mean, at the time, it would have felt as though it should have been like a monster movie. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Two reasons. One, we've been in the process for about a year of developing the streaming version of the Mothman Prophecies. Really? Yeah. 
And I'm working with a guy named Terry Metalis, who works on Picard, who used to do uh, 12 Monkeys, and Alex Kurtzman, the Star Trek guru. Both of those guys are huge fans of the film, and they are executive producers. And we're about a year into developing the idea for a series. I mean, mm-hmm. look, Mothman had a lot of influences. Sure. But when I watch a lot of television now, I find it very, a lot of it's very similar. Mm-hmm. One show that I did love was the one Jason Bateman directed, um, The Outsider. No. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, it's based on a Stephen King novel. Incredible cinematography. Mm. Like, very Mothman. It is. And the sound of it was what made it unique. Mm. In Mothman Prophecies, we hired our sound designer before we hired our cinematographer. Ah, wow. And the sound of the film was incredibly important. And to follow up to your previous point, it was being developed as a movie into much more of a creature monster movie, which they had offered me the movie. I read a script and passed. And then every time they kept on doing new drafts with more and more Mothman, <laughs> a red-eyed monster, it just got less and less interesting. So I, with two writer friends of mine, Lewis Clark and uh, Ernie Marrero, wrote a draft that basically just went back to Richard Haddam's original draft and cherry picked some of the ideas that they had come up with, but just said, how little do I see the Mothman? And that was the version that Richard Gere signed off on. Right, right. So your thought that it being designed to be a monster movie is probably right, except you just don't get to see it. Yeah, I mean, I think what's most chilling about the Mothman in this movie is it's hard to describe it. Like, is it an entity? Is it on a different plane of existence? And it's never really explained. Like, what was your approach to sort of portraying the Mothman on screen? Well, the entities of energy that take the form of either the Mothman an entity, a visual entity with red eyes known as the Mothman, a hunched, shadowy figure with a deep voice called Indrid Cold, any electronic disturbance, any energetic disturbance, a phone call, a piece of light in the sky, it's all Mothman. So it's really any fear-based perceptual event coming from the experiencer, Mm. right? It's all coming from the subject. It's all coming from the subjective viewpoint and it manifests itself in different ways to different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very immersive experience, both audio and visual wise. Obviously lots of amazing imagery with red eyes and red lights throughout the film. Um, But audio wise, the voice is just so terrifying. And I heard it was, it's you, right? Hello, John Kine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my voice. So when we did the major scene with Richard Gere in the hotel room, Mm. you shoot the whole phone call from the time the phone rings and, hello, John Kine. Chills. (laughs) All the way to the end. Now, I said, well, let's hook up so a little receiver so I could... I could do the lines off screen lines for Richard. Right, right. So you've got this entity that's manipulating him, that can see what he's doing, that can feel him. Yet for Richard, Richard's on the set and talking to me, Mm. but I could see him. My job 
was to kind of just manipulate it with the rhythm, mm-hmm. the halting nature of it. I added just because I was having fun with it. Sure. <laughs> Seeing him respond, you know, chapstick. Uh, like, so you wanted it to feel like the audio was coming from one thing through the ear. Yeah. So I yeah. kind of did that in my voice. Right. As opposed to after the fact. I just remember we did it and Richard was like, that was really creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of just, I didn't do it with any like, I wanted to be slightly benevolent mm-hmm. and gentle, yet my natural voice is kind of deep. So we did that. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. in post, Lakeshore, the studio is like, we got to find the Mothman voice. And like, I was like, fine. Mm-hmm. I was never like, oh, it has to be me at all. And Claude Letissier, the French sound designer who I had hired, took my voice and doubled it and tripled it and then just like stretched it and squeezed it and kind of like so one's pitch slightly lower, one's pitch. Sometimes there's three of the same voice. Sometimes it's one. Mm. Like, so you're doing triple or quadruple exposures on film, but you're doing with sound, right? Mm. That's the mm. whole reason I hired him is because he was a genius and he goes, your voice should be the voice. And sure enough, we did it in the first audience screening. It was very upsetting to people and very like unnerving. Mm, yeah. So mm. they kept it in there. Except I never got credited for it in the credits. It said <laughs> this other guy who was the big guy, Bill, somebody who played Indrid Cold. He was an extra who was like the six, eight guy who walked through the smoke in the old um oh the chemical factory scene yeah yeah, yeah. and i wish i had done it because i should have had like sag royalties or something <laughs> oh, made some money. Yeah. <laughs> you've worked on a lot of music videos like a lot from really amazing artists like silverchair and u2 and nine inch nails we're in this together is probably my favorite Nine Inch Nails music video. Would you say that the music video format influenced the visual styles of the Mothman prophecies? Well, I don't know. Like, I still do videos, and the way I frame or shoot or come up with ideas is really like no different in a music video than it is in a film, than it is in a TV show. And there's imagery and blind spot, just like there are in a Chelsea Wolf video from 2016. Mm. I just did a film, a dance film called The Severing that's going to premiere at Slam Dance. That's very much a cousin of Mothman. Right, right. But it's about the body and grief, but it exists in the same palette and visual aesthetic as Mothman, you know? Right, right. Shadow and displacement and focus and defocus and. You know, there's just a certain way that I like to look at things that now I don't really, it doesn't matter what it is. I just shoot it a certain mm, way. Sure, yeah. sure. You know, Because I, I noticed in the Mothman prophecies, there's always a sense of intimacy. Like everything's very close and like a, a sense that there is always a presence around, like someone's watching John Klein all the time. It's uh yeah, it's really terrifying. Mm. And that really came from the design principles with the production designer, Richard Hoover, and really baked into the sets and the style. Mm-hmm. And again, by doing the sound first and played a lot of sound on the set, you know, one of the reasons I did the film was if you read the script, 
it was a really weird script. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not obvious what's going on plot wise. Mm. You don't really answer the question as to like, what did it have to do with his wife? So there's a certain distancing of ambiguity with it that I felt was baked into Keel's book, right? Sure. And having experienced grief, unfortunately, later, my wife died after I made that movie. There's a powerlessness that John Klein has that I felt years later mm. in grief. You can't explain it. It permeates it. So it's with Gordon. It's with Will Patton, right? It's just this feeling. So if you've got a camera and you just say, okay, we're going to do this scene and the language and the feeling of it are disquieting and a little uncomfortable and fear runs throughout it, right? Mm. Fear and the unknown runs throughout every scene in that movie. I watched it recently. and was like every scene is really loaded with meaning in that it never, it gives you another piece of the puzzle down, but it's never really connecting in that mechanics of plot, like plot one plus two plus three, you know, which is a lot of storytelling now, especially in TV does. It's just so plot driven, right? Mm. Plot kind of overpowers character and theme. And Mothman was very much where the theme of not knowing the theme of madness within and the feeling definitely trumped the plot. Mm. So therefore, when you're visualizing it and you're telling your second unit guys to go shoot the car going up in the snow in Washington, D.C., and the footage comes back with, hey, it's all shot on film too, which is a great difference between it shot digitally and film. Mm -hmm. And it comes back and there's a registration problem. So like, and there's these little, like what look like notes coming off of lights, right? Right, yeah. So, I mean, that's a total mistake. And you would reshoot that. And like, they're like, oh, we got to reshoot. I'm like, you got to be crazy. This is absolutely <laughs> not being reshot. Oh, wow. You couldn't design, you couldn't design visual effects like that. <laughs> The visual effects guy in that movie got so many gigs for mistakes. <laughs> it was out of focus. Wow. Shot infrared film. We'd have no idea what was going to happen. Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, what if we underexpose infrared film and put a light flashlight through the lens? What will happen? Wow. And you see it and you're like, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. People thought there was all these CGI. There's there's one computer-generated shot in the movie, which looks completely fake now. It's a point of view going through the bridge into the um, power plant at the end. Ah, uh, yes. If you yes, look at yes. it now, or if you catch it on TV, you'll be like, geez, it looks like a video game shot in the middle of, ostensibly, a, a movie shot on film. So right now, Mothman, even though it was released in 2002... It doesn't look like a mid-2000 film. It looks more like a late 70s, early 80s movie. Yeah. yeah, I think it ages really well because of the practical effects and lack of CGI. Mm. That bridge scene, well, that's amazing. Again, <laughs> sound first. My composers, Tom and Andy, Glenn Branca, famous noise guitarist, the editor, Brian Burdan, from the time John turns and he sees the bridge and he says, in mouth says, oh my God, you hear a doom, doom, doom. Yeah, that pulsating sort of, yeah, drum. The whole thing was pre-mixed. Right. The whole thing was pre-mixed sound first. Ah. So it could just build and build 
and layer and get more disturbing just to the end. So it went to this excruciating point. And literally, we were pulling every scrape of every like camera rollout. And oh my God, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a good story about the bridge, how little money we did that whole sequence for, right? Like the whole thing was done by a guy named Gene Warren. Gene Warren was an old school practical effects guy. He had done Terminator 2, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. So Gene built the bridge. And it was one six scale model that would break apart and the cars would collapse uh-huh. shot at nighttime out in Burbank. So the illusion is, yeah, you really feel like the bridge is cut. So, but it was mm. all done with a model, right? Mm. Right. It was really Gene Warren, Robert Grasmere, the effects supervisor and stunt guy. We had done a small stunt bridge, which was about 60 feet long with some practical stuff. It was all on a big pulley system and a cantilevered thing. Right. On the real bridge, we shot all of like the stuff with gear. And, you know, it was a quite elaborate sequence that we storyboarded. And, um, you know, you're working on that the whole movie, but it constantly Lakeshore was like, oh, we can't afford that. You got to lose another shot. And you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so one night... We went up there the first night to shoot and it was snowing. And I'm like, we had to shoot something that first night. And in between the snow, we're just shooting some extras up there. And again, the production company, they're great, but they were cheap, right? They didn't want to hire real extras who had to act, who like who were supposed to be scared in the car, right? Right. Yeah. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? Just throw some people in there and have them say, act scared. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> so at one point, there's this kid in the back seat. He's like maybe 13. And they were trying to get his performance. Like, okay, the thing's coming. You're scared. And he was like, ah. Like, I was like, oh, fuck. This, <laughs> God, this is terrible. This is horrible. Yeah. I'm like, okay, bring the camera closer. Because they had the camera so far away. And it was like really detached. I was like, no, put a wider lens closer, right against the glass, right? Have the kid just sit right against the glass, right? Don't tell him we're going to shoot. I said, just tell him to just like hang out by the window. We'll be with him. <laughs> so he doesn't see me. And I say, okay, when I say go, just flick the flashlight three times, right? Because I wanted some sort of light in the background, right? So something behind him. Mm-hmm. And so I said, go. And the light went. And I took a huge like hammer or something, right? Yeah. And I just smashed it against like metal right underneath the car window right <laughs> to scare the shit out of him yeah so in the shot the shot's in like that right wow like, but it's a pure reaction of fear yeah now that's the kind of manipulation you have to do and in that movie instead of having four or five shots of the guy going like, do you want him to look like this? Do you want him to look like that? No, you have like yeah. one shot of 14 year old scared junior high school kid. <laughs> so that sequence was a question of getting every inch of every piece of material we could use. And then Brian Burdan and Claude and Tom and Andy just did a great job of letting it, you know, again, feel hallucinatory. You don't worry about the logic at that point. You know, you've got the basics. Where's Richard Gere? Where's Laura Linney? Mm-hmm. That stuff's been storyboarded. That stuff's baked in. You know, you have that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have what's happening story wise, but what you don't have is that visceral texture 
so I see sequences now in movies and like the shit's all so perfect and storyboarded and there's no mistakes and it doesn't feel, you don't feel anything. Mm. The cast is uniformly excellent throughout the whole film. Certainly with Richard Gere, this is something that I'd, at the time, I'd never seen him take on this kind of a performance. Mm. Was he the first choice for the lead? Was he baked in from the beginning or were there other ideas for the role? Well, when Lakeshore approached me about doing the movie, there's actually another movie that I was trying to get off the ground and they wanted Richard to do it. And I didn't think Richard was right for that movie, but that was just my opinion. Mm. So when they came back and said, Richard's interested in this, I was like, oh, he'd be really good for this because he's so great reacting to things. He's he's like Harrison Ford, you know, like super grounded. Yeah. And he's very smart and he's deceptively intuitive. So when we did the draft that put some of this ambiguity into it and some emotion into it, and, you know, Richard's a Buddhist. Mm. So you're dealing with a lot of these ideas of death and ego and he responded to it. Right. Okay. So he said, you know, he goes, I want to play this. Like there's two John Kleins. There's the John Klein that's alive and the John Klein that's dead. Ah. I said, that's really interesting. What do you mean? He goes, well, you know, there's always parts of our id and ego and super ego and different levels of your own self. But with him within grief, you separate from yourself. So he goes, I want to play it such that there's two of me. We even took that to a visual degree of like, and there's all these little gags and mirrors and stuff where he's like in the reflection, delay the reflection and post like a couple frames. So he's not in sync with himself. Yeah. But that came from Richard's sense of how he played it. You know, he was kind of not connected to himself from the time he got out of the car Mm. right and knocked on the door that began the bad dream like dorothy and the wizard of oz right like yeah okay this is not a yellow brick road he was trying to find his way to truth yet was constantly thwarted had an ally in laura linney to try and make sense of it yet things kept on just knocking him over and making him unsure to the degree where he started to lose his mind, right? Did he see his wife? Was she there? What did she show up? And so this is again all the entity fucking with him, right? Yeah. The beings that are trying to get our fear tries to get us to a place where we can understand something larger than ourselves. That's the bottom line, right? Right. So religions try to do that, philosophies, spirits. Mm. to realize there's something larger than you in this universe. Mm. And as she says, John, you know, planes are going to crash and things are going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it, right? So it really comes down to our powerlessness in the world. And Richard, as a man, as a Buddhist, as a human, really understood that. So then he was just super grounded in his reaction to everything. Mm. You always underplay it. You always like play it super straight, sure. which is what the audience needed to have happen for them. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, I watched the movie about six months ago, and it was weird. Mm. It was weird the way that, like, also a year ago, I saw "Don't Look Now," mm. Nicholas Rogue, and I was like, "Oh it yeah," was weird like that. 
years. Sure. Okay. Another film about grief, oddly enough. Yes. I love the 70s. So, like, that's where, like, weird experimental things you could get away with in movies. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. Mothman was very much, like, kind of influenced by late 70s, like, Nick Rogue and Body Snatchers and stuff like that. Like, I saw all that before I ever laid eyes on a Tarkovsky movie. Right, Mm. yeah. So, I can't wait to make another thriller I can't wait for you to make another thriller. (laughs) I know. I've got one I'm very optimistic about called The Cold Read. The producers approached me about six months ago, and they actually had produced uh, Lost Highway, the David Lynch movie. Mm. And they came in and they said, we've got a script that we think would be really good for you. And I read it, and I was just like, "Mm, just, (laughs) yeah. It reminded me of when I first read Mothman, just like, super yummy, super tonally, like, about a reader. Did you see Nightmare Alley? Not yet, no. Well, you know, cold reading is where, like, these psychics, but really, like, people who communicate with the dead, I'd say it's a cousin of that idea. Mm. And it's set in 2004. Yeah, I'm very optimistic about it. Well, we'll look for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least we can look forward to a series. And although it's tangential, but I read that Arlington Road is being developed into a series as well. And Arlington Road is closer to being a series than Mothman is at this point on the track. Mm-hmm. I think Mothman will get its day. It's just once we get everybody focused on it again, I think we'll we'll get it there. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I look forward to seeing more of this mythology. Yeah, you might get the movie Cold Read before you get either of them okay i've decided i've made my dramedies my comedy dramas they're out of my system so (laughs) now it's only dark 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 and darker for me yeah there's an appetite for it right now yeah there's an appetite for something i don't know Right? <laughs> yes. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, and sharing your memories of the film. It's been great. What memories? I don't remember any of it. <laughs> and a real pleasure. Yeah. And a pleasure talking to all you Mothman freaks out there. <laughs> yeah. So own your fear and uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. 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 All right, we are back. That was a fantastic interview with Mark Fellington. Uh, yes. So much insight. Yes, and it's so clear what a fun project it was for him and how much he put into it as well. Yeah. So, I mean, he did have a lot of uh, challenges to overcome, mm. but I think for the most part, he delivered the film he wanted. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, those challenges sort of created opportunities that he could then mm. use, like, you know, uh, footage coming in out of registrations that ended up with these really weird light streaks on it. So he just yeah. used it as part of the mythos. Mm. Um, mm. Really interesting how he, yeah, used what he was given and the circumstances and improvised to create something that is... I mean, I I would say unique, but it's been so influential. It's been copied a lot, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into it, uh, Mm. had you seen this movie before? Yes. So I had seen this movie before. This was one of those ones that was right at the beginning of the DVD era, had loads Mm -hmm. of special features. So 
Uh, that's how I saw it. But I think you were fortunate enough to have a theatrical experience, which yeah. I'm very jealous of. I mean, I mean, it came out in 2002, you know. I wasn't yeah. a, a baby <laughs> for once. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw it in, in New Zealand, in Wellington, probably at Reading Cinema. Um, I, I remember feeling very affected by this movie. Like, it really mm. gets under your skin. Like, it really yeah. does sort of emotionally and mentally yeah affect you it's it's an experience like what um mark mark said like it's it's not it's not really about plot or characters it's quite different in terms of of cinema it's, it's much more of uh, audio visual immersion i guess yeah very much an experience that's why i'm quite jealous that you saw it in the theater with a really good sound system because the sound is is every bit as important as the visual. I mean, as he mm. said, he hired the sound designer before he hired the cinematographer. So I can just imagine how much of a disturbing, a singular experience this was in a darkened room. Yeah, must have been yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, watching it again, I did message you when I, when I first started watching it, like, why is the sound so odd? And I had to adjust mm. some settings on my TV because the sound and, and score is mixed quite loud mm. and compared with the, with the dialogue. So in some scenes, it's quite hard to hear what the dialogue is. Um, but mm. it, it's all about that immersion. Like you do feel like you're within the experience of, of the film yeah and it's quite clever the way that it slowly undermines your own sense of reality as it progresses and um how a richard gear who i mean this is an odd genre he doesn't tend to do this type of genre i mean he was the rom-com king thanks to pretty woman in the early 90s yeah he'd been in serious things like um, police dramas and uh, officer and a gentleman and and he sort of refused to do the pretty boy stuff most of the time he sort of rejected that he was more interested in serious stuff so for him to do this it must have resonated with him he must have seen something important and interesting about it and I think it's I mean I make fun of his performance because he does have the these ticks that I recognize from his <laughs> movies where he sort of closes his eyes and bows his head and pinches the bridge of his nose and yeah and sure. so on but I do actually think this is his best performance I mean to get you really do as a viewer as you're experiencing and as you're watching him you see him going from a rational reporter who doesn't believe in any of this stuff just slowly get undermined because of his own fears and his own grief until mm. the point where Laura Linney who is also fantastic in this movie says to him do you realize what is happening to you mm. and it's like a glass of cold water to the face it's very clever in the way that it mounts that experience over the course of the film it does seem to me that it's not a film that's sort of built around a logic puzzle and plot it's much more about um, sensations and it has much more of an emotional arc rather than a logical one i would say yeah yeah i think it, the themes of, of grief and loss um is does play a huge part in the film and the fact that yeah it is about him dealing with the loss of his wife and then finally getting over it and accepting it and not wanting to further pursue this sort of apparition of his wife that keeps popping yeah. up and, and just move on. And 
yeah, move on with his life. I did like that there was no love story because I think yes. that could have been very cheesy. And for the most part, this movie isn't <laughs> as sort of conventional as you would expect. No. He does save Connie, but mm. it's not in the cheesy, like the man saves the day sort of thing. She's just in a predicament um, that's sort of prophesized. Yeah. And as well as that, she's o- the only reason she is still on the bridge at the point where it collapses is because she's trying to save people. She's doing her yeah. job. Yeah. So she, it's a heroic situation that she is in. She's not inactive damsel in distress at all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Mark described Richard Gere's acting quite well in saying that his his performance was quite understated. Mm. Like he didn't go full crazy. Like he, it wasn't like a Nicolas Cage kind of uh, character arc where it's just like he's just bonkers by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, he Not is the still <laughs> he is still like <laughs> remarkably calm under the circumstances. Yeah. Um, and then you have the character that um, Will, what's his name, Will Patton, mm, wonderful actor. The character that Will Patton plays, Gordon, who is mm. the crazy crazy guy that is off his rocker um yeah and so there's there's a nice sort of grounding with the main character and also connie being much more grounded there is yeah i love laura linney's character in this there's Mm. nobody else who could walk into a room where there is a a guy with a shotgun (laughs) (laughs) pushing somebody into the corner of his shower and just say well, hey, Gordon, how are you doing? And just completely diffuse the situation. Mm. And I believe in that woman. I believe that that woman would exist in that town and have that role Mm. in the community. I like that. She's very pragmatic, but she's still open-minded. So, you know, when Gordon does eventually die and she says, oh, you know, he's been dead for eight hours out here. When did you receive a phone call from him? And Richard Gere's character says an hour ago she Mm. just looks at him and says i hate this and it's it's not i don't believe you or i i can't handle this it's just this is disturbing to me i can't rationalize this but i'm not rejecting it outright it just makes me very uncomfortable but pragmatically i'm just going to get on with Mm. what it is i can do in the circumstances i really like her as a character originally if you look at the deleted scenes she was a single mother she had a child and there is more of a yeah i think there's a there was a kiss at one point <sighs> with the john klein character but they cut all of that out because they just didn't feel it was right yes. and i agree with them and i Good. agree with you i like Poor. that they are <laughs> yeah they are close friends they have a, an intellectual synergy and they have an emotional empathy for each other and i i buy that and mm. I don't see it as being a sexual thing at all. Yeah, yeah. I just hate in movies where the character, the main character loses a loved one and then they're, to show that they've gotten over their loss, they just end up with a new person. It's like you, you can get over loss without, you know, <laughs> finding a new partner. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's a good narrative shortcut to demonstrating that. 
Um, sure. But I mean, sure. there are other ways. I mean, one of my favorite movies, Ordinary People, they signal it by the main characters refusing to eat throughout the whole movie. And one of the last things that he does is accept food mm-hmm. from his love interest. So it's, there are sort of other ways of doing it. But yeah. Mm. Mm. replacing your dead partner is pretty cheesy. <laughs> yeah, like a <laughs> starving. Um, so <laughs> now it's time for random trivia. So Dan, what strange piece of trivia did a spooky voice whisper at you over the phone today? Well, this piece of trivia, Mark didn't actually uh, tell us, but I did read it on IMDb and I, I think it is true as the author in the movie that... Uh, John Klein goes to see is, is his name is Alexander Leek. So his last name is Leek, which is actually Keel backwards. So the, the real uh. author of Mothman <laughs> Prophecy is John A. Keel. Yes. Well, that's quite clever, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sort of a very subtle reference. Yes. Another tiny piece of trivia I do have. Uh, Mark Pellington makes a on-screen cameo as uh, the bartender mm. at about the hour and 30 minute mark in the, uh, I think it's a hotel lobby. He's the, he's the bartender. Yes. Wearing a white shirt and a black waistcoat. Yeah. <laughs> doing not a lot. <laughs> no, I but think it's he ch- him. It is him, yeah. He changes the TV channel or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's our trivia. Yes. Will Patton as well is a, a very, very fine actor. I mean, we've come across him Yes, before. yes, we have. Yeah, I do. I didn't even realize because I don't really know him that well as as an actor. Mm. But yeah, we have come across him in the fourth kind, <laughs> yes. where he's kind of in Laura Linney's role, and his character is terrible and makes no sense. Oh, that whole so we were kind of making yeah. fun of him. It is in the movie itself. Visually, is clearly ripping off this one, but mm-hmm. not with the same sort of mechanics behind it and the same logic behind it. So no, it's just not at all. Style for nothing. Oh, it, it is funny, though, because re-watching this movie, I did see similarities to The Fourth Kind. Mm. And, and even just how it was presented as as a film um, and, and yeah. the, the main character experiencing these supernatural or alien experiences and no one believing and, yeah, the small town aspect and the cop friend and very similar it is very similar and uh yeah in no way as satisfying or as disturbing when you Mm. watch it yeah 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 Yeah. will Patton, by the way still working quite regularly now and two films he was in recently to show you his range he was in minari where he was uh, nominated for a screen actors guild award and uh, he was also in Halloween Kills as a police officer. So he's oh he's still going strong. So great. That's great. Wow, mm. wow. And uh, of course, we we can't not mention Deborah Missing. I mm. only know her from Will and Grace. I have yes. not seen her in anything else. <laughs> I have seen her in a few films actually, but yeah, she was at the height of her fame as uh, in Will and Grace at the time. To, so to see her as this traumatized spaced out woman who has seen something that has just haunted her and completely changed her perspective on the world mm. was quite disturbing yeah really thought, was it it's it is quite 
moving, like watching those scenes mm. when, when she's in the hospital bed and she's just trying to come to grips with what she's witnessed is, it's a, it's a performance. It's great. And it's, yeah. she's in the movie for a fraction of a second, pretty much. It's, it's a tiny role, but she gives it her all. She does, yeah. And she performs the same function, I think, as Sandra Bullock in The Vanishing, which is that she is such a memorable and instantly lovable presence that when right. she's truly ripped away from you as an audience, you mm. can empathise with the the character who has, has yeah, lost her yeah. in the in the movie so yeah. it works in in very much the same way and the way she keeps reappearing is so disturbing so, so disturbing. yeah yeah music music yeah we we have talked yeah. about it extensively with uh with mark uh, i would like to to state full disclosure that i i never knew how to pronounce the uh duo's name i thought it was one word Toman dandy had no idea that it was as, as, as simple as tom and andy because the musicians are, <laughs> names are tom thomas haju and andy milburn uh there you go most unoriginal name for a duo but <laughs> i got confused <laughs> yeah Okay, well, maybe we could do one ourselves like that. Um, Dan and Con, or Con and Dan, or it's not quite as fun, is it? <laughs> uh, but, but yes, music wise, amazing, amazing. Uh, I think you pointed out as well that there's a lot of music cues, um, using sort of more sound manipulation that foreshadow events to come, they do so. I mean, the film does a really good job of seeding those things all the way through like you said with the tibetan bowls there are these metallic noises that are meant mm. to symbolize the straining of the cables on the bridge i think it's the first sound you hear when this film starts proper when richard gear pulls the phone away from his ear mm. it's there from the outset that that is what this is all pointing towards and there are these lovely echoey samples i think it's guitars that they've just yeah. manipulated all to hell to sound like this metallic breaking, stretching, scratching noise. I think they're scratching the guitar strings. I think that's what they're uh, doing. So it's that sound yeah. with lots of distortion and reverb and lots of manipulation. Um, mm. But yeah, you do hear it throughout the film. And during the, the bridge collapse scene, you hear exactly that same sound as well. So right. it really does yeah. kind of precede the event to come. Yeah, it does. What I love about it is even though it's what you would describe as a sound design score, it's still a great score it to is. listen to. It is. And it has the emotional element to it that I love as well, because there is a sizable string orchestra in there. Mm. But it, it's not emotional in a sort of sappy, clingy way. It's quite somber and dour and moody yes. in terms of its use of strings. So even things like after Richard Gere learns the news that his wife has died, there is a surge in the chords, but it's not sort of overly sappy. It's mm. just sort of disquieting and melancholy rather than melodramatic and and sappy. So yeah. the yeah. strings are used really well. I think that it's, there's a really good balance because... Um, Mark Pellington did say that he was highly influenced by David Lynch. But the problem with David Lynch's films, score-wise, is they can be too ethereal and too 
crazy and like weird tones yeah. and 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 it, it does kind of dis- disassociates you from from the sort of humanity of the film whereas the strings in the score of of Mothman Prophecies makes it yeah it does ground the sort of overall mm. sonic palette yeah it does and it's uh, very subtle the things that they're using to achieve the effects they're achieving uh, on the documentary they talk about how it's always using augmented fifths uh-huh. so having the third note in the chord just one step higher than it wants to be to resolve mm-hmm. and leaving it hanging there all the time so that it never quite resolves, which is quite literally <laughs> the theme of the movie, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, right, right, right. And they also talk about how all the sound manipulation, they were working on Akai samplers back in the day, those ah, standalone sample yes, units. Yes which meant that all the editing work they were doing, it's not like today where you'd apply an effect and then you could just, you know, hit undo. Mm. Once they'd done it, it was done. It was destructive editing. So they were up, up late at night destroying these samples <laughs> yeah. through multiple chains of, of effects, quite experimental and exciting. The, the end result speaks for itself. It's just, it's a marvellous album mm. if you can find it. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Okay, it's the Mobley Awards. It's where we present our favourite cryptozoological parts of the film in a number of prophetically disastrous categories. Best quote. My favourite quote is probably the one where the leak character puts a capper on the whole point of the movie which is, in the end, it all comes down to just one simple question. Which is more important, having proof or being alive? Mm. And what I like about that line is it's quite spooky in the sense that when he says being alive, it's not just a question of getting on with your life and living. It's There's also a threat implicit there, which yeah. is that if you go down this path and keep following Mothman, you will end up dead. Yeah, <laughs> so like Gordon. Yep. It's uh, threatening, but also quite a good philosophy for life. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I found this movie uh, just jam-packed with great quotes, to be honest. Oh, <laughs> there are loads. I'll mention one I picked out. This is near the start of the film where John is talking to his friend in the hospital, kind of discussing Mary's, uh, his wife's condition, kind of how sort of futile their sort of situation is like with her tumor and he says it's like one day you're just driving along in your car and the universe just points at you and says ah there you are a happy couple i've been looking for you and it is kind of the theme of the film like how powerless we are with to to our fates i I guess yeah and also the sense of injustice which again very much a post 9-11 themes like sure bad terrible terrible things happen to perfectly happy blameless lovely people mm. so it seems so unfair and difficult to understand but that's mm-hmm. the way it is mm-hmm. <laughs> best hair or costume this movie isn't it's not really a costume hair worthy movie, but I do want to point out <laughs> Richard Gere in how I imagine Richard Gere's dress when I close my eyes. He's always wearing a heavy woolen coat with leather gloves <laughs> and a scarf. 
and <laughs> I don't know whether that's his, his general wardrobe, but he he always seems to be uh, dressed the same in his films. He wears it well, it has he to be does. said. Yes. He does. Yeah. I was going to say his long dark coat as well, because I remember there was this just this big uh, trend for wearing long dark coats. I yes. remember then I was, uh, yeah, a young man, late teenager then. And yeah, I was always wearing the long dark coats <laughs> at university then, I think. so. Mm. Yeah. Very popular. It was, yeah. And, and also, I think it's from the X-Files. Again, it's it's people in oh, long, warm coats right. running around with torches. It's quite a popular culture image, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Most naughty's moment. It's like the most obvious things, the, the slow shutter speed, slow-mo, that seemed to be quite prevalent in the 90s and 2000s, where everything's just kind of mm. juttering for slow-mo on, on purpose. Um, and uh, yeah, the the flashbacks having some weird grainy high contrast, strange color grade over it. But knowing that this was all on film as well, so it's, it's I don't know, it's it's credible still. It's not digital. It's still credible, yeah, yeah. It's not the fourth kind sort of let's just press all the buttons on our digital editor and see what the result mm. is. This is them filming with infrared film stock and and screwing around with film emulsions. Mm. And, goodness knows what else so they're sort of doing sort of grungy fun analog things that mm. i love mm. yeah how about for you 2000s i thought the opening titles existing in the world of the movie was quite a early uh -huh. 2000s oh. thing so the titles are reflected on Deborah Messing's lipstick case on the glass partition oh, right. i didn't notice that richard gear's office yeah, and it just reminds me of things like Panic, Panic Room. Room. Is probably yes, yes, <laughs> That's what I was thinking. yes, <laughs> yeah. Where the the titles are hanging in spaces, which I mean is thematically relevant. I'm not sure what the relevance is necessarily here, but I think you mentioned another film recently where the titles existed in real space, yeah, but it wasn't the, one I knew. The Tall Man, I think, was the one I was uh, thinking of. Yeah, title sequence is incredible. I mean, the movie not so much, but. Yeah, opening, really good. <laughs> Favourite scene! Well, I mean, it's the bridge collapse, obviously. <laughs> it's, it's a standout, yeah. But if I had to pick something other than that, then it would be the phone call with Indrid Cold that John Ooh, Klein has so in that motel room. Ooh, yeah, sonically. That, yeah. Chills. It is so disturbing, and the setting as well in that dark green and dark red motel room that seems to be perilously close to just being complete darkness mm. with the lamps next to the wall casting big shadows and yeah and it's the closest we get to a monster reveal yeah are you talking about the, the mirror well just the fact that you get to talk to the monster right right and right, right, right. that just seems so it's just conceptually mind-blowing mm, hey would mm, you like mm. to talk to the monster it's like wow yeah 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 <laughs> really that's true <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Very odd. I mean, I apart from the bridge scene, I was really affected by the car crash scene in the start. It's mm. incredibly well orchestrated. So I watched this movie again with headphones on and having the Mothman fly through the, the viewer, it, it feels like he's flown through me. It, the sound, right. how it's, it's mixed, it's just incredible. And then when the car crash occurs, there's a sort of extension of time 
that's kind of almost like brindy palmery. Mm. And then it's punctuated by that glass break when um, Deborah Messing's head hits the, the car window. Ugh. It's just spine tingling. Like, it's a really, really well put together scene. Yeah, I love that you never get an external shot of the car stunt. Mm. You're always in there with the characters just experiencing it. Yeah. Most cliche thriller moment. I think possibly the biggest cliche and quite a naughty's one, at least the naughty's is the last time it would happen because of the birth of the internet, is uh, the professor in the library dumping the folklore and the, all of the exposition and the background yep. for the big bad. Yep. Because even by 2012 Sinister, it, it got to be a professor on a Zoom call, but yep. most of the time now it's just Google searches, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, there's always a professor, I, I find. I mean, again, another similarity <laughs> with The Fourth Kind and the author in that. It's just, there oh, always yeah. <laughs> seems to be one person on Earth that has written a whole book on this exact topic. <laughs> of course. <laughs> always. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I that's an obvious yeah. cliche. I also found uh, the phone ringing when it's off the hook or not plugged in. Yes, I wrote that down as well. Nightmare on Elm Street 84, probably the other one that uh, mm. started that off. Yeah. Best special effect. Uh, I really did like the, the Mothman imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of alluding to shapes. And and there was a, there was one moment where you do see quite a mothy looking creature, um, but you never see you never really see the Mothman, and I'm glad they they never had the big reveal. Like it was so ambiguous, and it kept it nice and uh, mysterious. Yeah, the screenplay writer Richard Haddam said that there were subsequent drafts after he was involved where. It did end with John Klein sort of fighting with Mothman. What? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) It would have been terrible. So thank goodness Mark Pellington said, hey, this first draft, that's the one I want to do. Wow. Can you imagine how awful the movie would have been (laughs) if it was just a creature feature? (laughs) Yeah. It would have been completely disposable. And I'm sure Richard Gere wouldn't have been involved Mm, in it for starters. mm. Or Laura Linney. There's Mm. no way. No. special effect for you it's got to be the bridge collapse again but it's specifically the model work i'm a huge fan of bigatures from this era sort of the lord of the rings era mm. i'm re-watching those in 4k at the moment right and it really gives you an appreciation for building the people who knew the craftspeople who knew how to build these things to scale and light them and film them and then use CG to put characters in them. Mm. There is one specific shot of people running away as the bridge cracks in half that is clearly, when you look back on it, it's obviously got to be a miniature with superimposed extras via you know cg compositing but i mean it's there briefly and it's terrifying and completely believable Mm. and i love it i miss it i don't think they do that kind of stuff anymore no no favorite sound effect we've said it already it's the tibetan singing bowl when john's dead wife suddenly appears in his bed Mm. yeah i i just think it's amazing Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with the obvious choice of Indrid Cold's voice. Mm. Just phenomenal manipulation and how Mark Pellington uh, described like triple layering the voice on top of each other and slowing it down and speeding it. It's, yeah, 
it sounds so good. Yeah, it does. They haven't just slapped on one plug-in and hoped for the best. It's yeah, it's constantly it's changing. changing and evolving, and sometimes it sounds more human. Sometimes it sounds more electronic. It's a wonder to sort of sonically experience. Yeah, it is. It's great. Most funniest moment. As much as I love Laura Linney's performance for just what a believable, wonderful character she is, she also, as she has many times in her career, she has a great line in comedy. And that's seen right after she's been introduced to John Klein, and they're just sort of getting to know each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, He asks if she grew up around here, and she says, oh yes. And he says, on a farm? And she says, shucks, no, real live house with indoor plumbing and everything. (laughs) And he he apologizes because this is obviously just a complete stereotype that he's applied to her unthinkingly. But even after he apologizes as she's getting in the car, she says, we even had shoes for church and schooling and stuff. (laughs) I just thought, yes, you give it to him. (laughs) goddamn city slicker with his <laughs> stereotyped view of this town in West Virginia. I loved it. I thought it was really good and humbling and funny. And I think so often, just in real life, when you meet somebody, if you can have a shared moment of humour like that, it it quickly warms you up to both characters mm. and believe in their relationship. It really works well. And yeah. she does a great job of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real conversation, you know, between two real people. Yeah. So, funniest scene for me, it's a scene where they're analysing the recording of Indrid Cole. So, oh, they're God. in the studio. I wonder studio. if you're going to say the same thing <laughs> as me. Did you spot the guy in the foreground? Yes, there's a, there's a random dude in the foreground just casually playing singing glasses for no reason whatsoever. I mean, that whole scene is ridiculous. If, if you pause on that scene and you look at what is in this studio, in, in inverted commas, <laughs> it's like they just hired a whole bunch of random audio gear and just placed it in a space because it's, it's, it's very odd. Yeah. No, it, it looked ridiculous to me, uh, so I can only imagine how ridiculous it looked to you. But as soon as I saw that ginger-haired kid in the foreground <laughs> rubbing his finger along the rim of a glass, I thought, <laughs> what the hell? What kind of research are you doing I at this know. university? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? uh, I don't know. It, uh, maybe it was a reference to the, the Tibetan bowls, the resonating vibrations. Uh, f- wow. Maybe. Maybe, <laughs> but yeah. Right? That's our move, Lance. Hi, I'm Bernard Rose, the director of Paper House, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Oh, yes, it's that time. The final verdict. Should the Mothman prophecies be released from the oubliette to prank call the masses and tell them they're going to love this film without even knowing it? (laughs) Or should it be dropped off a collapsing bridge to sink to the bottom of the oubliette to be forgotten forever? Well, I I think it's pretty obvious, uh, Conrad, that we (laughs) we both really enjoyed this film. But uh, (laughs) tell us your final thoughts. 
Yeah, I think given that we spent sort of a considerable amount of time telling Mark Pellington what an amazing movie he's made and then gushing about it mm. in every segment of the show after that, I think it's obvious we think this is a, a bit of a standout. I I was interested to revisit it because I didn't know whether it was just like my brain at the time that it just appealed to me and actually it didn't hold up, but it really does. Mm. It's singular in its uh, approach and the combination of visuals and sonics. And it also is anchored by some incredible performances. And the central premise of it is still so bewitching. And the final solution that they come up with is such a, a great philosophy for life generally that it's, it, you know, feels sort of not hugely profound, but very satisfying mm. as an experience. So if you haven't seen this, I think you really should check it out. It's hugely influential, particularly on lots of supernaturally tinged crime thrillers you see on streaming services now. So, right, yes. yeah. I think this is a keeper. This one's got to be set loose to fly and terrorise another small town. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would agree with all of that. Uh, I can't say enough about how sort of immersive this movie is. It is really an experience. Uh, ideal situation to watch this either on headphones or with a really good sound system because, yes, yeah, sonically... It is something that you, is more felt mm. than and than seen almost. It's yeah. and it does really creep under your skin and and makes you think about it for hours afterwards. Um, repeat watches, it gets better and better. You notice more subtleties and subliminal visuals and sound cues. Uh, great performances. Even the script is great. So uh, yeah. because of, of the sort of ambiguity of the ending as well, it, it makes it more enjoyable. Like there's enough answered for it to be still a conclusion but there's still a lot of unanswered questions yeah which makes it yeah a, a movie to sort of ponder over um mm -hmm. so this is uh highly recommended uh, in my book yeah definitely so off you go mothman fly <laughs> <Or> scamper away <laughs> yes. we'll see you later so, listeners, if you want to keep up to date with our future episodes, our future prophetic uh, reviews of, of films, <laughs> uh, you can follow us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. We're also available via email on movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And uh, please, if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on uh, whatever platform you are listening to us on. And now Spotify apparently has a mm. rating and review implementation. So please yes. <laughs> tell us how much you love us. <laughs> yeah, we need it to bolster our confidence. <laughs> And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate films for us to cover in future episodes and get access to extended cuts of various segments, including, for example, the full version of our over an hour long conversation with mm. Mark Pellington on yeah. this episode. And for $5, you get access to our special minisodes where we discuss new films that aren't in the oubliette because they're massively popular and well-known. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
lots of value and uh, we appreciate your support. Yes, and, and they're going to be in, in video form, right, Conrad? Yes, yes. Yeah, we're going to have to show our faces this year. <laughs> I'm buying foundation by the truckload. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to buy some lights or posters or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Conrad, what are we going to be discussing next episode? Well, one of our New Year's resolutions was that we wanted to cover more films from before the 80s because... We're often stuck in the 80s, but also we do a lot of stuff from from after that. But we really want to delve into some older titles. So we said to our patrons, nominate anything from a decade prior to that. So we've got wonderful list of films suggested by our patrons, so many. including <laughs> so many. Uh, I'll quickly go through them. We've got S7S's. Damnation Alley, Quatermass in the Pit, Horror Express, The Devil Rides Out, Night of the Demon, Dead of Night, The Island of Dr. Moreau from 77, Crypt of the Vampire, The Land Unknown, Reptilicus, Future World, Omega Man, Zardos, <laughs> Sean Connery in a nappy, everyone, <laughs> Fearless Vampire Killers, and the 1979 version of Dracula, which is, again, one that's been forgotten. So... Here they are on the oubliette roulette, if you want to wheel that one out, Dan. Oh, it's, uh, it's heavy with all these choices. It is. <laughs> okay, let me just <clears throat> warm my hands up and give it a good spin. Okay. Ooh. 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 Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it's landed on... Crypt of the Vampire. Oh, all right. I have not seen this. So who nominated this? Let's see. Crypt of the Vampire was nominated by Eddie Coulter. Mm. It is from 1964, and it's an Italian-Spanish horror film directed by Camillo Mastrosinque, okay. based on the 1872 novel Carmilla, which I think is widely regarded to be one of the first vampire novels predating Ooh. Dracula. So I have not seen it, but it stars Christopher Lee. So <laughs> of course. I'm excited already. <laughs> me too. Me too. Oh dear. I can't wait to delve into an older film. It's gonna be really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Okay. Well Thanks for joining us for this special anniversary of Mothman. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Yes. Thank you, Mark Pellington, for uh, giving us all that insight and juicy um, behind-the-scenes information about it. Yeah, it was great fun to talk to, especially when he was doing his injured cold. <laughs> <laughs> the voice. Chills. <laughs> okay. Bye for now, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>